welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. Jonathan Rose comes from a long line of real estate investors who changed the game, including his great uncle who built the first affordable housing project in New York in 1930. In the modern era, Jonathan has bought over 100 buildings, primarily for the working poor, and instead of managing these properties for cash flow, invests in the businesses to reduce energy consumption and create community facilities for its residents, all while keeping rents affordable. When the Jonathan Rose companies buys a property, they install energy savers that you can see like solar panels, but also many that you don't, like more efficient boilers. But more important for the residents, Rose Companies also builds community facilities and amenities like gyms and hires counselors to ensure that residents get the services they need. Rose Companies does this in such a way that drives increased returns. Over 15% returns to investors over a 15-year period and an annual cash-on-cash distribution of 6%. So why don't more real estate owners invest in their properties? Hopefully, investors in real estate will listen to the wisdom of Jonathan Rose and change their practices and build more livable and environmentally efficient communities. At the very least, hopefully some will implement simple and expensive climate savers like caulking, which has a rapid payback period. Excited to have Jonathan Rose on the show to challenge Milton Friedman's maxim that we must separate economic and social goals, but instead that real asset owners should actively pursue profitable ways to improve social returns while driving economically superior outcomes. So thank you very much. Joined by Jonathan Rose today. Uh, as a lifelong New Yorker, I'm a big fan of his work, as many of us are in major cities around the country. Um, so we're very happy to have him as one of the most forward-thinking real estate developers uh, in the country uh, on topics related to impact. So, um, Jonathan, if you could uh, talk to us first about a deal that really represents your style of investing and sort of the innovations you've brought to real estate investing. Thank you. So it's wonderful to be with you. And first of all, I want to note that the company, in effect, has two streams. One is um, in which one is an investing stream in which we buy existing affordable housing, we preserve its affordability, we make it green, and we bring social health and education programs to our residents. 
We call that creating communities of opportunity. I'll talk about that in a minute. And the second is where we develop new projects. Um, and we do the same things. We do them as very green projects, mixed use, often mixed income, and uh, bring social health and education programs. The reason I mention this is because the, um, the acquisition work we all do through our investment funds, which we raise from outside investors, and the development work, um, which has a higher risk profile and different and much actually lower equity needs, we do is essentially a series of one-off deals so that um, our primary uh, investing face to the world is the um, acquisition face, but that's not the whole face of the company. I'm going to describe a project called Squire Village. It is an affordable housing project just seven miles east in Man of uh, Hartford, Connecticut, in Manchester, Connecticut. Um, it is uh, 345 units, and it houses a, a low-income Section 8 uh, building uh, apartments, and it houses about a thousand residents. And these people are essentially the working poor and retired seniors with very low incomes. Um, the way Section 8 housing works is the resident pays 30% of their income for rent, and the federal government pays the rest through a contract. And we bought the project. It had been owned by the guy who built it, actually the contractor who built it, um, in the, I think around 1980, and um, he managed it for his cash flow and didn't put a lot, it was in okay condition, didn't put a lot into the building. And so we completely transformed it. We made, we make everything we do green through something following a guideline called the Enterprise Green Community Guidelines. It has solar on the roof. We actually have enough solar that it generates all the power that we as landlord need, not the residents, uh, needs. We renovated all the units and we built a $2 million community center. And in that center, we have classrooms for after school programs for kids. We have um, a kitchen, which we use as part of a demonstration program with residents on healthy food, community gardens, an exercise room, health exam rooms. We partnered with a local healthcare agency. And because we can deliver basically a thousand Medicaid and Medicare funded residents to them, they actually bring healthcare to the site in our health exam rooms. We ask them to prescribe what we call a behavioral pharmacy. And so, uh, uh, which is move, nourish, connect, and be. So not only medicine, but move, exercise. So we have an exercise room and walking paths around the project. Nourish healthy food, connect socialization, and be, which is stress reduction, such as meditation and yoga. At any rate, the point is we took a project, uh, these there's so many amazing community social health and education programs that happen at this project um, that, that the residents never had access to before, that the residents never had access to before, and the, and the larger community never had access to before. And yet we're able to structure this with a lot of clever tax credits and, and the way we structure the use of affordable housing financing in, and so that it's one of our strongest uh, company cash flowers. Uh, this sounds like paradise. I mean, so you're taking Section 8 housing, which is low-income housing. You're adding a medical clinic, uh, community center for $2 million. Like, I, to, to me, that sounds like paradise for, for anyone. H how do you make it work on sort of a low-income? I assume Section 8 isn't, you know, full market rents or something. How do you make that, all that work? So actually, 
the interesting thing about the Section 8 program, Section 8 program goes back to the early 19, late 70s and early 80s. And it's a program that says the residents pay 30% of their income for rent. The owner, the, the government pays the difference between that and the market rent on a 20-year contract. So you get, so first of all, from a financing point of view, it's very easy to finance because you get a 20-year government contract for what turns out to be 70, 80 percent of the income that comes from the project. Number two, remember that is a, that they're making up the difference between their, what the tenants are paying, what's the market. So what's the market? So when we buy these projects, the market for, we're buying mediocre affordable housing. So the market is other mediocre affordable housing. So the comparable rents are pretty low. But when we renovate it and make it green and put in new baths and kitchens and we put in a community center and all these amenities, the comparables are actually much higher. So the 20-year contracted federal guaranteed part of the rent it goes way up because the quality of what we're delivering goes up. And then we can finance against that. And we can today borrow from Fannie and Freddie and FHA at like 2.85% interest rate 30 to 35 year fixed. So we're able to do a lot of good um, with the financing that we can borrow. That, that seems like such a basic insight. Uh, did you come up with that? Do other people do this? How common is this? So first of all, my team came up with it. I have an amazing, you know, our company is 450 people. So I have an amazing group of people who are continually thinking and innovating. My job is to set strategy, inspire them. But a lot of these thoughts come from my people. Um, and we're not the only one who figured out that you can get an increased federal rent, which is called a markup to market, by improving the project. But we were certainly the first, and I think one of the only, who has been really taking this strategy to say the purpose of getting the markup to market is to make the project greener and to improve the lives of the residents and particularly the lives of the, of the children going forward. So our predominant economic view, which really unfortunately grew out of Milton Friedman in the 1980s, et cetera, is that we should be maximizing our individual or our firm or our project's uh, economic outcomes. And we say that we want to optimize versus maximize the relationship between our social goals, our environmental goals, and our economic goals. So we're always looking for solutions, like I just described one, in which we're doing better for the world, but we're also getting a better return for it. I'll give you another example. So in that project, I mentioned we green made the project much greener. Our goal is we will invest any equity that um, that will can have a twenty a five a five year payback, a twenty percent return on investment. So that's fantastic, by the way. And again, it's non-correlated, you know, whether the uh, economy is booming or busting, you're getting a 20% return. So, and we get that through really simple things like insulation, variable speed pumps and motors. Um, these older buildings, just a huge amount of caulking does this. Uh, um, we do put solar on buildings. We do a whole variety of things. But at any rate, so if we put an equity and get a a 20% return, a five-year payback, that's like better for the earth and it's an amazing return. But then here's what happens. Remember I said we're financing at like 2.5% to 2.8, even if it's 3%, um, 35 years. So then if you take those in 
investing. Now, a lot of the programs we're um, borrowing from, we actually helped create with Fannie and Freddie um, these green programs where they'll lend you an extra million dollars for green improvements. So now let's say I'm borrowing $20 million for a project. And I'm sorry, they'll lend us an extra 5%. So 5% of 20 million is 1 million. So if I can take those things that would give me a 20% return if I put equity in and actually finance them with 3% 35-year money. Um, it's, it's infinite return. It's, it's like an infinite IRR. It's like a fantastic return. And yet it's a million dollars that I'm putting into greening a property. So we're substantially reducing. Every time we buy a project, we are reducing its climate footprint. So it's, it's, a, it's an anomaly that as a company, our strategy design, the bigger we get, the smaller the climate footprint of the world goes. So we're, it's all from the strategy of just saying, where can I find the sweet spot, the, the place where we optimize environmental, social, and economic returns? But, but you, know, you wrote a book. You're very public about what you do. You're an ICM member. Um, how come more real estate owners don't do that? It seems like higher returns is a good thing. Uh, also, by the way, a lot of non-volatility. So all these strategies also reduce risk. So this is very perplexing to me. So we, through our investment funds, we have so far bought about 100 billion buildings around the country. And I walk most of them before we buy them. And what's been really interesting is there has, and we're buying from all kinds of owners, very sophisticated owners, very unsophisticated owners. And I have not walked a single building where there were not these incredibly obvious um, environmental solutions, such as there'd be uninsulated pipes in the basement. There would be, you know, one of the things I love is you go to a roof door and very, you know, very often up the stairwell, and very often it's this banged up hollow metal uninsulated thing, you know, maybe falling off the hinges or whatever. And it's, there's a chimney effect. So, you know, all this heat just goes up the stairwells and out. <clears throat> I bet you're replacing the door paybacks in a week or something. I mean, in the same. <laughs> I mean, so you would think the scroogiest, most unenvironmentally interested guy, uh, owner, would replace that door, but they don't. And this is the amazing thing: you you actually come from a long family of real estate developers. So, like, what sets you on this path of of switching from the scroogey guy who doesn't change the door? for reasons we can't quite comprehend, to where you are today focused on uh, building communities of opportunity? So first of all, uh, I didn't come from a Scroogey family, and I'm very lucky for that. I'm a third-generation developer. And interestingly, the, the firm was really created by my grandfather, and the founding force was my great-uncle, a guy named David Rose. And David Rose was a fantastic innovator. And um, one of the things I'm very proud of is very early in his career, in 1930 or 31, he built a project called Academy Gardens, which is in the Bronx. Um, at the same time, David Rockefeller started, I'm sorry, John Rockefeller started building uh, uh, Rockefeller Center. And I remember there was this article that came out and said, here we are in the middle of the, of the Depression, and only two people in New York have the courage you know, to build. Don D. Rockefeller's building Rockefeller Center, and David Rose, who's building... New York State Affordable Housing Project Number One, which was financed <laughs> under some middle-income program, but he had all these innovations in it. One of the things he had was what then was called 
a total energy plant. So there was a generator, an oil run generator in the building that actually powered, provided all the electricity for the building. And they took the heat off the generator to provide all the heat. So it's what we would call cogeneration today. And the reason was because this was the first six-story walk up in the Bronx that had an elevator in every stairwell. Um, so he was just a tremendous, my Uncle Dave did all kinds of amazing things. He was very interested very early on in things like solar energy. So although my family developed wonderful but more traditional buildings, and uh, after he passed away, probably less innovative, but very, very good buildings. Um, but uh, I was very blessed. Um, as a small child, I loved building. I was particularly, our family was building some Mitchell Lamas, and I was particularly interested in, which are affordable housing projects, in the affordable housing they're building in the Bronx. I was um, deeply interested in the environment, spent a lot of time as a child. Back then, many parents said to their kids, go out and play, you know, like go out and just get out of the house and play. I spent a lot of time playing in nature. And I had a deep, you know, as the civil rights movement unfolded in the early 60s, late 50s and early 60s, um, it was something that was talked about a lot in my house. And I had a very deep sense of social justice and that that was going to be an important part of my life. So from a very young person, I was seeking to figure out how do you put a real estate career together with being an environmentalist and being a social justice activist. And back then there weren't that many models. And so in part, I had to figure out how to create one. But it was from people, you know, I'm not the only one. There are amazing entrepreneurial not-for-profits that do this and many other wonderful developers around the country who do really great community-based work. But um, what, what I find interesting about sort of where you came from, and by the way, seeing a Black Lives Matter or sort of thing on a real estate developer website, was, was, which is on your site, was kind of unique. Um, what, what I'm struck by is the examples you gave are such high return on investment, pure capitalist motivation. And, and yet your, your competitors aren't taking advantage of the programs. And you've come at this completely orthogonally where you're trying to sort of save the world through social justice. Do, do, do you feel like there's some sort of incongruity there? I feel like there's total congruity. And as I, as I said, that is our work. Our work oh, so I just want to, to just give, so the audience gets some framework for this. So our 15-year uh, our investors over 15 years have gotten an IRR of 15% and an annual distribution of six plus percent cash on cash. So these are very good returns. And for uh, the uh, individuals, we have individuals, foundations, pension funds, many different kinds of investors. But for the individuals, there's also the benefit of depreciation. So it's essentially very mostly tax free, that return. So we certainly attend to the economic effects of our work. So that's actually what I just said was a really, is a, a word I want to build on, which is effects. So what's interesting is in medicine, we talk about, well, this is what a drug does, and these are the side effects. But they're actually all the effects of the drug. We just happen to prefer some over others, but it's a causing all of them. And all of our actions in the world actually have multiple effects. They have environmental effects, social effects, economic effects, um, you know, family effects, they have all kinds of effects. So our goal, and we have a system, unfortunately, an economic system, which rewards people for ignoring 
the externalities, for ignoring the effects that are outside of their focus or business so that the more you pollute, if it saves you money, the better you do, but the worse the whole world does. So we just have a very whole systems point of view where we're trying to figure out how can we create the healthiest outcomes for our people, for our investors, for our buildings, for the world, for our residents. Um, it's just a different kind of paying attention. But the, the consequence of that paying attention is much lower risk, much uh, a greater sense of purpose. And by the way, purpose has, allows us to attract amazing employees. I bet you that's an aspect of all the impact managers that when you have a high sense of purpose, you get much better. You get very high quality and committed employees. Um, so it's just looking at things from a whole systems point of view, and it's working. One of the things you talk about, do you reduce like uh, uh, um, vacancy rates and things like that? Well, so that so one of the great things about affordable housing is that um, because we so we focus on buying projects in high demand markets where there's a big gap between the affordable rent and the market rent. So, again, this has a great social social goal and that it, these are places that really need affordable housing and we're preserving it or developing it. But at the same time, it means that our buildings are always 100% full. I was, again, I was just going through these budgets and, you know, uh, so we budget like a 2% vacancy, but that's really just the frictional turnover, you know, when people leave, because all our projects have long waiting lists because they're affordable housing. And right. we have exceedingly low marketing costs because they're affordable housing. So there's all kinds of benefits to creating something for a market that is so essentially needed. And so what kind of services, you, you kind of talked about the services you provide. Do you charge extra for them or do you get a percentage to add to the so revenue base? this is the challenge. And you sent me a series of questions to look at before this. And one of the questions you asked was that we really delve into. So where does, where is there the challenge between your highest aspirations and delivering the bottom line? And the services area is really it, because in a few cases, in some, so the way we deliver services is we pay for the salary of somebody called a resident service coordinator. This is a highly skilled social service person, and we give them an office and a little bit of resources, and then they coordinate everything. So, for example, we don't provide health care, but we, the resident service coordinator, coordinates with healthcare agencies who come in and help schedule for our residents. We don't actually have our own teachers who do after-school courses. We work with a Boys and Girls Club or a YMCA or other organizations or local libraries that do literacy programs or um, you know, immigrant organizations that do English as a second language. All those things, the resident service coordinator ties together and then those others provide the services. But affordable housing, the way the budgets are set and the way the budgets that we're in a very regulated world are regulated by cities and um, states and HUD, don't really permit a residence or they have like, you know, they want to make sure you're not wasting money. So they've permitted expenses and they're careful. And, and in many cases, they don't permit a resident service coordinator. Or certainly they say, well, you can have one, but if you do, it's coming out of your bottom line, not our bottom line. So this becomes the moral question, because we know what an extraordinary difference they make in our residents' lives. 
And we really want to have at least one for every project, and our larger projects may have two or three. And as I said, there are certain HUD programs for senior housing, and some of our housing projects do have very well-funded resident service coordinators. And the question is, to what extent do we spend cash flow on delivering something that so substantially improves our residents' lives when, in essence, it's really coming out of our and our investors' pockets? And our sense is, as long as we can deliver consistent and extraordinary returns that our investors also really want us to change people's lives and improve their health and make the world a better place. So we have, you know, it's by feel as to how much we can put into resident service coordinators and we, and services, and we debate this all the time. But for example, to date, our across our entire population, which is 70% senior, and we've heard about all the issues of COVID and senior housing, we've had a half a percent infection rate across our entire population, which is incredible. And that comes from the rigor we've put into cleaning, into care, into communicating with our residents, a lot of communicating with our residents, but also our resident service coordinators who are working overtime. For example, say we have seniors who we're going to a senior lunch program, which may be the, the most nutrition they got every day. And those programs are closed because of COVID. So our resident service coordinators have been working to with food banks to get packaged food, then delivered to their apartments. I mean, all kinds of incredible things they have done. And I'll defend that expense any day. Well, but it, it sounds like on one hand you're defending it on moral grounds, but earlier you said it actually helps your vacancy rate. So um, do you actually try to make that economic paradigm? Yes, we, we, we deeply and, – and actually we're trying to develop some software now that will help us really – it's all anecdotal. I mean so we're really trying to be uh, – we have several things we're trying to do to rigorously track the efficacy of this. So one is we're trying to build some software. But the other thing is we put together a research partnership with uh, the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health, Harvard Chan School of Public Health, Dartmouth has an amazing health economics group, a fantastic national not-for-profit called Enterprise Community Partners and one called NeighborWorks. And that team, those five organizations have been working as a collaborative with us to des develop design protocols, um, study design protocols to actually try and measure the efficacy uh, of all this work to really understand. Um, so think of this as a theory of change. The theory of change is saying that preserving existing affordable housing, making it green, which by the way, not only saves energy, but reduces toxicity. We use all kinds of non-toxic materials in our buildings, improving the focus on health education, um, social services to our residents, that that has internal benefits, it has resident benefits, it has neighborhood benefits, it has what I'm going to call systemic benefits, in that, for example, uh, anecdotally, we know that this work can cut uh, hospital emergency room visits way down, which has a savings to the hospital, etc. We got a grant and we did a, a, spent a year doing a literature review, we have a very thorough literature review, and now uh, we're beginning to collect the data for what we hope will be a 10-year study 
to really understand the efficacy of all of these parts of our work. Do you share that with your limited partners or how do you communicate to them? Yes, we do share with them. And many, by the way, we have many healthcare pension funds uh, as limited partners and foundations. We have I, Our partners are very interested in this work and we have actually turned to our partners and uh, are just beginning to ask them, would they help? This um, work all needs to be funded. Uh, it's, it gets funded through a foundation because it's all, tech, you know, when you fund public schools of public health to do public health studies and the studies will be all shared with the world. Our goal when this is all done is to change the paradigm of how affordable housing is run. So we're, that's what we're trying to build the data for. But our investors are keenly interested in it and uh, some of them are supporting it. it. It sounds like a no brainer. I want to ask you about some weird stuff that's happening in the market right now. You have, you know, um, you talked about the affordable programs right now in certain major metropolises like New York, San Francisco, the affordable rates were set by area median income, right, by the amount of someone makes, and the market rate is set by the market. And historically, the market rate has been well above the affordable rates. But with what's happened with COVID and sort of people being moving around, the market rate has dropped below. Um, can you talk about sort of what it means to be affordable and how COVID and other things will impact the affordable housing community? It's a great question. So first of all, we haven't seen the market rate drop below the affordable rents. The affordable rents are, are still lower in, in these high cost markets. But I do, my sense is that there has been and there will continue to be an out migration from these high cost markets because um, so many people have learned that so many younger people went home to live with their parents and learned that the community they grew up in was a lot more affordable than the community they, than the New York or San Francisco or Palo Alto or Boston that they moved to. Um, so uh, I think we're going to see a redistribution of population more evenly um, or, or population growth is going to decline in the high cost cities and we're going to see it increase in the lower costs, uh, smaller cities that have a lot of quality of life. And, and how will that impact your investment thesis? Again, because uh, we're, so number one, we're looking at those markets. We're trying to, we always want to be where there's growth. Um, but we're confident that the assets we have in New York and in the Bay Area and stuff are, going to, are still going to do very well. Our Bay Area, like we're just, I bought a, you know, we're about to buy a project, we hope, you know, right near Berkeley. We've actually done very well in Berkeley because there's a university and that's a substantial driver. So we look for other drivers. But here's the more complicated question. Then the next 10 years for all industries, not just real estate, have a huge amount of uncertainty. So we have climate risk. And climate risk is appearing, you know, we used to think about sea level rise and hurricanes, but there's the heat effect, there's the drought effect, there's now the fire effect, there's now the smoke effect. So there are places that uh, in California, which are not likely to catch on fire, but are very likely to be uh, surrounded by smoke two, three, four months a year, and people may just not want to live in those places anymore. So there are, anyway, there are climate effects, there are the effects of income inequality and the effects of systemic racism and the effects of um, their, the globalization versus localization. There's a tremendous amount of, by the way, one of the biggest issues in, in real estate now, and I think will be for other industries, is the cost of insurance. You know, insurance is not a, you know, sponge that just absorbs losses. It's a, it's a system that tries to 
take a lot of risk, average it, and, and then uh, put a profit on top of the average. As the risks, which I've just described, and there are many more, are all going to increase over the next decade, insurance costs have to increase, and maybe and insurance limits are going to be reduced, and there are more and more we're seeing there are places where you may not be able to insure. And again, this is not just for real estate. This is going to be for a lot of businesses. So, um, so one of the things is um, our company has always been extremely strategic. And I think that's uh, one of the, I'll give you an example of that in a minute. But, and so I don't have an answer to these questions. But one of the things I do have is we're collecting an enormous amount of data. And we're, we're spending a lot of time thinking about it. And so we are more likely to be, have come up with at least some of the right responses to these risks than others. So one of the questions- Give me an example, go ahead, yeah. You're, yeah. You're, so one of the, one of the uh, things that were in your notes, so in starting in the 1980s, uh, I still, even earlier, but in my, the first product, major project I tried to develop with my family and I still in my family business, was a real focus on what's called transit-oriented development. And it was a theory that being next to mass transit not only significantly reduce one's climate impacts and energy use, which it does because you, you're not driving a car, and, but also um, uh, you know, has environmental, social, and, and marketing benefits. And this idea was kind of roundly, as America dramatically reduced its interests in cities and, and suburbanized in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, this theory was definitely not mainstream. And uh, I even did, again, you can see we like research, some interesting research with NRDC, and we published data that showed that suburban buildings used more energy of the cars getting to and from them than the buildings themselves. Okay, so in 2005, we issued our, we uh, launched our first uh, impact investment fund. By the way, there weren't that many impact investment funds 15 years ago. And it was called a smart growth fund. And we said, we're going to buy any real estate anywhere in the country that is adjacent in thriving cities and is in, in walking distance to mass transit. And that was, and we bought affordable housing, some mixed income housing, office and retail. And we said, this idea that transit matters is so obvious that the world is going to wake up to it. And we are future-proofing our portfolio and we are building in in future value because there's a disconnect because the rest of the world doesn't think the transit matters. And the second thing we said is we're going to make our buildings greener. It's going to save energy, but also, you know, over the life of this fund, the world's going to actually wake up and realize that green buildings matter. So having a forward-looking strategy in 2005, we were exactly right. And of course, you know, just a few years later, green, the greenness of buildings mattered and to both the residents and the investors. And transit became a huge factor. And there's a lot of data now that shows that there are much better cap rates and increased value by being next to mass transit. And it all inured to the benefit of the portfolio. And so 2005 funds is a very bad year to have a fund because you're buying into these rising prices before recession. The uh, average return is between like 9 and 15% negative and we're 9% positive as a fund because we future-proofed it with the right strategy. You know, it's fascinating because I feel like there's so many people who are thinking forward and then there are whole classes of people like Exxon that has like fallen out of the S&P 500 because they, they fail to see climate change. Do, do you think that, you know, 
you're going to see some of the largest asset owners lose market share because they miss these trends that allows for folks like you to, to come up behind them? Well, first of all, there's a lot of other people who see that affordable housing, there's been a lot of people who've raised affordable housing funds and a lot of large asset managers are very much focused on trying to buy or build affordable housing. Um, the, uh, people do figure these trends out. You know, the interesting thing about Exxon is that they had data very early, it's been proven, they completely understood the effect of climate change. And they allowed their political bias, really, to cloud their understanding that what they were was one of the world's largest energy companies. And if they led the trend, and there was going to be a transition, and if they led the transition, they would be heroes, and they would future-proof themselves. You know, I've just read a, something that says, once General Motors said that you know, by 2030 or, or 2035, I, I can't remember which, that they're simply not going to be making uh, gasoline-powered automobiles and every other major car company saying the same thing, that essentially there's almost no value in, in, in undeveloped oil reserves anymore. Well, I love the Super Bowl commercial. The, the if you if the the we're going to take on Norway, the General Motors Super Bowl commercial. If you haven't watched it, you should, you should watch it. Um, today, though, how many of the you know how, of the assets in real estate? How many do you think share this kind of green you know community? Everyone sort of has a different name for it, but this approach to sort of communities of opportunity. What what percent of asset holders do you think have that? Uh, well. It's, it's an idea that in different ways is growing in the affordable housing world. So the, the, huh, the people who own cheap housing and rent it at low rents, and that may be affordable. It's called naturally occurring affordable housing. Those asset owners pay much less attention to these things. But in the affordable housing world, there are others in their own ways who are, they may not be doing it in the way that we're doing it, but who, who, these are growing trends. And I actually like that because I know that I can't alone make the world a better place. I need, so one of our goals as a company has always been to build models, prove that they work. And, and by the way, no one's gonna duplicate them and then have them duplicated. No one's gonna duplicate them if they don't make money. So that's another reason why, interestingly, the social and environmental missions have to be profitable or they won't scale. But I guess here, that's my fundamental question. When will the vast majority of real estate owners, if you had to, say, is it five years? You know, you, you came, you said in 2005, I've got my smart growth concept. It's now 2021. And I think basically most people kind of think you're right, but you still have a huge, when does that transition happen for so the it, real estate assets? So, so it unfolds, you know, I'm hoping that the Biden, remember I said, we, we have to really stretch to fund resident service coordinators. So I'm hoping that that's something that the Biden administration somewhere along the way will realize the savings to society just in hospital emergency room and healthcare costs is so much. And since Obamacare is picking up a lot of that, that they'll realize it's it's a it's actually a cost-saving strategy, just as those green strategies I described are cost-saving strategies. But we're seeing these ideas scaling. We're we're um, and real estate owners are increasingly, you know, the, the, you know, so there is a tipping point that happened around 2009-2010, where, for example, a class A, part of the definition of a class A office building was there was Lee Gold. And I don't think there's been a 
class A office building that hasn't been built with some green aspirations since. And now what's interesting is the, the kind of major tenants of, in 2018-19, I don't know if they're going to be the tenants of 2021 or not, of the larger um, tech companies, the really big ones that wanted like hundreds of thousands of square feet, they all wanted the, what's called the well standard, building standard, which is a standard that really aspires to a lot of indoor air quality and health and things for the, uh, the occupants. Um, uh, so the, uh, the, the, the aspiration of the industry is much better than was. And there's, a, by the way, a fantastic public office company called the Kilroy Company, based out of LA. It's, it's a publicly traded office REIT, and um, they're super green and, and very responsible in what they're doing. So it, it's, we're not the only one, and I see the industry um, uh, doing, I'm, I'm proud of my industry. Let me ask you one last question and then, and then wrap it up. Um, does this help you win deals or sell deals at higher cap rates or lower cap rates? So it absolutely helps us win deals. So one of the things is we're in a very competitive environment now for buying, because as I said, we're not the only ones who figured out that these wonderful qualities of affordable housing. So if we're in a straight bid, we will always lose because we were just not the high payer. So um, we bought a fantastic property in, um, in Brooklyn and we bought it from the NYU Langone hospital system and uh, it, some affordable housing that, that they had done an acquisition they ended up with and it wasn't really core to their strategy. So they had what they viewed as a reputation risk. They had a, you know, and, and, and the bottom line is we were not the high bidder, but we got the property because of these goals. And that typically uh, helps us. There's a jewel we've been after three years in Chicago. It's a long, complicated story. And I, we don't have it completely, but we think we're close. And it's only because of our reputation and what we're going to do with this property. Uh, and anyway, the bottom line is, it absolutely helps us competing. When it comes to selling, again, remember, we're taking all these things and we're creating better bottom lines. And so, um, uh, and the properties are, you know, improved. They have very low, uh, they don't have any deferred maintenance or very low capital needs. So yes, that helps sell them too. And do the buyers uh, agree in some way to keep doing some of the things that you do or do you, do you restrict them in any way? No. And what's interesting is, so I'll tell you another one of our, I don't want to call it a secret, but another one of our techniques. When we buy a project, we're affordable housing preservers. So we will go to the local community and say, we'll exchange a real estate tax abatement in exchange for, um, say, 20-year abatement for 20 years of affordability. Those abatements are hugely valuable to us in improving our bottom line. And they give us also they give us tax certainty, so they help we take the volatility of future tax increases out. And what the community gets is affordable housing. So if we sell a project after ten years, it's still the buyer is getting the the benefit of the abatement, but also the obligation that they can't raise the rents. So there are certain things that we do that carry forward, but not everything. You create the structural incentive for everyone to do the right thing. Uh, Jonathan Rose, thank you so much. So exciting to hear someone innovating in a traditional real industry like real estate and, and changing the game. So really appreciate the work you're doing to build um, communities uh, across the country. Thank you so much for having me. 
This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.